if you've ever thought about all the different things that you're going to be able to do in heaven. Man, what's heaven going to be like? What are, what are we going to get to do? I remember being littler and thinking, man, I'm going to be able to run faster. I'm going to be able to jump higher. And I still think this because I'm a golfer. And if you're a golfer, you can echo this thought, I'm sure. I'm going to be able to play golf better, right? Maybe your perception of heaven is a little bit different than that. Maybe it's, it's more refined than that. And you're thinking, well, I'm going to be able to sing better than I can sing now. I'm going to be able to worship God without sin. I'm going to be able to see my lost loved ones that have gone on before me. I'm going to be able to see ancestors that I never knew but were followers of Jesus and get to know then. I'm going to be able to see that child that I lost when I get to heaven. We often spend time thinking about all of the things that we're going to be able to do. All of the things that we're going to be able to experience. All of the things that, that unlike here, we're going to be able to do better there. And yet, there's at least one thing that we can do better here than we can do in heaven. There's at least one thing that we can do here that, quite frankly and quite honestly, we can't do in heaven. And what is that one thing? Well, it's the subject of our message this morning. It's the second part of our mission statement here at Compass Bible Church, and that is that we exist to make Christ known. Think of the lost in your life. Think of the people in your life that you care about, that you love, that you have been praying for, that you have been sharing the gospel with faithfully. Maybe it's a coworker, or a neighbor or a family member. Maybe it's somebody that you share your dinner table with even. And, and you've been thinking and praying and pleading for them to come to Christ. And the, the hard reality is that I think we should feel some of the weight of this morning is that we have a limited amount of time to get that done. It's not on us, ultimately. It's on Christ, but on God. But, but we, as his ambassadors, are charged with the message to make Christ known. Last week we talked about knowing him. Well, that knowing him only works itself out effectively into the end that God has created it to, 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 to meet if we are faithful to also then go out with the message and to make him known. So that's what I want us to talk about this morning. What does it look like to do the one thing here on earth that we can do better here than we'll be able to do in heaven, and that is to make Christ known. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18. And in verse 18, we are going to read, starting together, uh, let me just read verses 18 and 19 to begin with. Apostle Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So let's just stop right there. And, and Paul starts out and he says, The wisdom or the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God foolishness is probably not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the gospel. When you think of the message that we've been singing about, that we've been talking about already this morning, that is that, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can live with him forever. And if we will repent from our sins and trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven and know that we will spend eternity with him. When you think about that, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not foolishness. And yet Paul says the word of the cross is folly, but then he qualifies it with this phrase, to those who are perishing. In other words, those who are not saved. The unbeliever. Before we get into why it's foolishness, it helps us to understand the word of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
The Apostle Paul explains the word of the cross or unpacks it for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So for Paul, this is the word of the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul was the herald of this message, this message that had been entrusted to him, that he had been made an ambassador of in 2 Corinthians 5. He unpacks that and talks about that for us. But that message he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 1, it's foolishness to a lost world. It's folly to those that are perishing. The word folly, what does that mean? It, it means this. It means ridiculous, foolish, nonsense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And so what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1 is, is he's saying, look, the, the wisest in the room, the smartest in the room from a world standard will look at the cross, look at the gospel and say, that's illogical. That doesn't make sense. That is foolish. I don't know if you have any youth or students around, but for me, to, to give you a, a, something that might be comparable, maybe you're a believer and you have been for a while and you're sitting there going, well, I don't understand how the word of the cross could be foolishness. Have you heard students and in, in, in young people talk these days? And I know I sound like the old guy saying, get off my lawn, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say get off my lawn for a second, okay? Like this one, bussin', bussin'. Like bussin' was what we did with the table when I was growing up after we were done with dinner. It's like, let's, let's get our plates, let's get all that stuff, and, and let's take them to the sink. Bussin' in today's, it means like something that's really good. That's bussin'. Yeah. My son is cringing right now on the front row, by the way. He's like, Dad, why? He asked me not to do this, but hey, the word's got to be preached, right? <laughs> How about this one? You ready for this one? Drip. Have you, somebody said, dude, your drip is on point. You're going, I, you're checking your coffee, and you're trying to think, am I spilling something? No, your drip is your style. Your style. So if, if somebody compliments your drip, then you can just say thank you and just move on with your life. How about this one? If someone is being extra, right? For the, all of the English language, extra has needed another word after it. Like extra something, right? Not anymore. Not anymore. Our youth, thank them, have made it just period, end of story, after extra. You're being extra. Extra what? Well, it means you're being over the top. It means you're being dramatic. How about this? That, that's a mood. What? What? Like, you're, that, that's a mood is what you will hear them say. And what that means, it's like a relatable situation. Oh, yeah, like that, that's a mood. I, can, I, I know what that's like. I, I can feel that. This one, bet. I remember the first time somebody said that to me, I was like, bet what? 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 Like I said something that was just a basic reality, and they said, bet. You want to take me up on that? Because we can. No, bet is apparently what you say when you agree with something. Bet. You guys are going to go out and just kill it today. You're going to go home. You're going to call and just, yeah. Or this one, cap or no cap. That one too. If you say cap, it means you disagree with something. So bet is like, yeah, I'm tracking, I follow bet. If, if you disagree, you say cap. You, you basically what you're saying is, no, you're not telling the truth, you're lying. And if it's no cap, 
then you're not lying. So you can no cap yourself. You can be like, hey, you know what? The Rangers traded for Max Scherzer last night, no cap. And I probably butchered that, but still, that's, that's where we're at in today's society, folks. The, the future presidents of the United States are gonna be saying things like this, okay? So just get ready, because it's coming. We struggle to wrap our minds around stuff like that, right? We go, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, you string a bunch of those together, like if you've got bussin' style, your drip is bussin', no cap, and it's extra, and your mood is on point. Like you just spoke in tongues to the majority of us. We laugh at that, but unfortunately, y'all, what seems so plain to us with the gospel can seem that nonsensical to somebody who's lost. It doesn't add up. You might say, well, why? Why is that? Well, in part, because it's, it's rooted to a God, a belief in a God that they do not acknowledge, right? It's, it's rooted to a belief in the Bible, which is a book that they question in doubt, it's rooted to events that took place almost 2,000 years ago. It's rooted to a belief in a man who died and purportedly rose from the grave. And then I think this one, above all, perhaps in our culture and society, it's exclusive. We proclaim a message that says there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus Christ. We proclaim a message that says, no, it's not about being a good person. It's about being a saved person, someone saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we preach that message, and the world looks at that and says, that is foolishness. But this is the message that God has chosen for us to carry, for us to use to make Christ known of how we can be brought into right relationship with him. And though it's a message that the world finds incredulous and silly and foolish, this is the one that God has chosen to do the most powerful work at all, of all, which is to take someone who is dead and make them alive in Christ. If we're going to go with that message, we have to understand how we're going to be received. And so our first point this morning is this. Recognize the absurdity of God's gospel. Recognize, from the world's perspective at least, the absurdity of God's gospel. Does it seem to you that board games are getting to where you need a PhD to be able to track with how the rules go in board games these days? Some of y'all are, are just, you play them. I, Settlers of Catan is like the, the, the most my brain is able to comprehend. And even then, every time I play, I need somebody to explain the rules to me again on that game. There's games that there, there are different cards and you level up and you power up. And, and I, as a college pastor, I had a group of guys that used to like to play these games and I was trying to relate to them, and so I made the mistake of sitting down with them at a retreat and trying to play with them, and they took an hour and a half explaining the rules of the game to me, and I still don't know what the game was about. I, I did well, I think, in the end, but I don't know how or why, and if they asked me to play it again, I, I'd need them to just start all over again. Or when our twins were beginning to learn to communicate, Sam and John, they're, they're six now. They, they, thankfully, they speak English somewhat clearly now. But when they were growing up, man, they would just, they would talk to each other and babble at each other. And Amanda and I would be looking at them going, what in the world is going through your mind? They were communicating. They knew what was going on. But we were on the outside looking in going, this doesn't make sense. That's the way it appears to the world when we often bring up and talk about the gospel. It seems crazy, made up foolish to believe in. Why? 
Well, aside from the reasons that we've already talked about, there's another problem that the world faces. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, it's, it's, it seems obscure, unclear, foolish. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There's the same phrase that he used in 1 Corinthians. In their case, the, the case of those that are perishing, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so why do they find it foolish? Well, for all the reasons we talked about, it's rooted to a belief in a God that they don't acknowledge, the Bible, all of those things. But the, the, the other problem that they're facing is that their minds, according to 2 Corinthians 4, have been blinded by the God of this world, by Satan, to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we are going out and sharing the gospel, church, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. And this is why you and I can't save anybody. All we can do is go with the message and trust that God will do the heavy lifting to save whom he's going to save. Because that's the thing. Unless God does the work of removing the veil in the hearts, in the minds of the unbeliever, there's a major and massive barrier between you and them when it comes to the content of the gospel. And as clear as it may seem to you, it's, as, it's that foolish, it's that absurd to the person that you're trying to reach with the gospel. Okay, well, this seems like a pretty discouraging first point as we're talking about going and making Christ known. What should we do? A few suggestions in light of this reality that the gospel is absurd to a perishing world. First is this. Church, we need to stay humble. We need to stay humble. And remember that the only reason why it makes sense to us is because of the mercy and grace of God as he has removed the veil so that we could see the truth of the gospel. And so we need to stay humble. A second encouragement for us is this. Don't grow discouraged in light of this. Don't grow discouraged in light of this because the, the truth of the matter is, as we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, salvation is a work of God carried out entirely by him. And so you and I go as his messenger. And so if you share the gospel and someone rejects it, it does not mean that you have failed, nor does it mean that God has failed. It simply means that at that moment, at that time, it wasn't when he was going to save that person. So don't grow discouraged as somehow you have failed or God has failed. Instead, third point of application on this is grieve for the lost. Grieve for those to whom you have been sharing the gospel and their response is that's absurd, that's ridiculous, that's foolish. Who would ever believe in that? Don't get angry at them. But grieve for them. And then finally, stay persistent. Stay persistent. Because here's the great reality that we get. You and I, we're not sovereign. Amen? So what that means is you and I have the freedom to share the gospel with everyone and anyone, and we don't know when God's going to save them. And that's the most freeing reality that we have. Some want to say, you believe that God is sovereign over salvation, which we do. 
So then you must not believe in evangelism. And I would push back on that and say, absolutely not. In fact, it frees me up to evangelize even more boldly, even more zealously, because God is the one that's going to do the heavy lifting. And he's in control of when they bow the knee to Christ. And so I'm going to be persistent, and I'm going to go back out there and share the gospel over and over and over. In fact, there was a man named George Mueller. You may have heard the name. George Mueller identified five men in his life that he was going to be praying for. And he started praying for these men, and in a couple of weeks or months after he started praying for them, one of them came to faith in Christ. And then a short time later, a year or so had passed, that one had come to faith. It was 10 years, sorry, 10 years later, two more followed suit. So now three of the five were saved. That's after 10 years of prayer for these five men. 25 years after he had begun praying for these men and sharing the gospel with them, the fourth friend ended up being saved. So if you're doing math, four out of five, that leaves one. That final man that George Mueller was praying for and sharing the gospel with, he prayed for that man for 52 years and died without seeing that man come to faith in Christ. Shortly after his funeral, that fifth friend came to faith in Christ. That's why I say stay persistent. Because we never know when God's going to remove the veil. But as we share the gospel, as we present the hope of Jesus Christ, and we run into a world that finds it foolishness and folly, Paul is trying to prepare us for that, to say, look, we need to be ready for that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Yes, to us, it is the power of God for salvation. But to the world, it seems ridiculous. Well, what do we do in light of that? Because again, that seems pretty discouraging. Well, the one thing that we have to avoid is trying to help the gospel along. Trying to tamper with it, trying to change it, trying to make it more palatable to the world. In fact, pick up again in verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verses 19 through 21 there, what Paul has said initially here is he says, The gospel may well be foolishness to the lost world, but in God's plan, he has taken and chosen to take the the gospel, which seems foolish, and take the world's wisdom and flip those two, and turn them upside down. He unpacks some of the wisdom of the world there in verses 22 through 23 when he says the the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, the Jews and the Greeks, they wanted something more than the, the, the simple gospel. The Jews, they wanted signs. You remember that, right? They would go to Jesus on multiple occasions and say, what sign do you show us to do the things you do? In one occasion, in fact, in Matthew chapter 28, that happened. It said some of the scribes and Pharisees, or Matthew chapter 12, rather, verse 38. 
Matthew 12, 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So did the Jews get their sign? Well, in a sense, yes. Jesus said, here's your sign. Your sign is the cross and the empty tomb eventually. But even with the sign, they still didn't want Jesus. And that's why today, I wonder if you've ever thought, or maybe you've had a, a, an unbelieving friend or family member say, you know what, if Jesus would just show up and do what he used to do in the Gospels that you think that he's done, or that you say that he, then I would believe. And yet we know that's not the case. In fact, we're going to run into that in John's Gospel. John chapter 2 is going to say that there were many that, that believed in Jesus, and yet Jesus did not believe in their belief because he knew what was in the heart of men. See, many people were following Jesus because they just wanted to be entertained. They were like, look at this guy. Look, did you see what he did? He, he multiplied the loaves and the fish. He walks on water. Man, we want to be around this guy. But they didn't want Jesus. They just wanted the perks of Jesus. And so even if we could today raise the dead, even if we could today walk on water, would that change the hard hearts of the unbeliever? No. No, because that's not how God saves. And then there's the Greeks, and the Greeks, they, what do they want? Well, they want wisdom. The Greeks were those that were of the, the, the likes of, of Plato and Socrates and Demosthenes and Homer. They, they, were, they wanted the intellect. They wanted the debate. They wanted the, the, the philosophy and the exchange back and forth. And they looked at the content of the gospel that we would worship a crucified Savior as utterly ridiculous. But if Jesus sat down among the elite Greek philosophers of his day and reasoned with them and went back and forth with them on the grounds of simple philosophy, would that save anyone? No. Because that's not the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation is the gospel. The wisdom of the world cannot and will not save. But the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel is that which saves. And it's a message the world wouldn't invent. Look at the Marvel superhero world. It's not the message of the, the, the gospel. It's not the meek and humble savior. It's a message that doesn't mes mesh with intelligence or logic when we trust those things to be able to make sense of it. It's a message that only makes sense if God opens our eyes to understand it. And therein lies the beauty of the gospel. It's design according to God, is to give him all the glory, in him alone, all of the glory. And this is why in verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Even though it's a stumbling block to the Jews and the Gentiles, we preach Christ crucified. And it's why, church, we don't tamper with the gospel to try to make it look better to the lost world. Pick up in verse 26 again. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the key, no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's driving his testimony or his point home further by appealing to the testimony of those that he's writing to. And he steps on toes a little bit here, but he says, look, consider your calling. God didn't save you because you're impressive. He didn't save me because I'm impressive. It's the opposite. He saved me because I was desperate and I needed him to save me. And in saving me, he gets all of the glory. See, the gospel is a complete and total paradigm shift. It takes the expectations of the world and throws them out. It takes the values of the world and turns them on their head. And that's all part of God's perfect plan to glorify himself. Because God didn't call the deserving or the accomplished or those admired by the world. He called those who could bring nothing to the table in order that no one would be able to boast except in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And so, yeah, we need to recognize the absurdity of the gospel, but the answer to that is we need to recognize, second this morning, point number two, the genius of God's gospel. The genius of God's gospel. Some of you in the room are parents. And you grew up, and, and, and growing up, you had the situation wherein you would look at your mom and dad and say, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? And then you became parents, and now all of a sudden you go, oh, that's why. Right? You, you understand. Case in point, I think the number one thing that all of us as kids wanted is like, why can't I just eat candy all day, every day for every meal? Makes sense to me as a, as a, a kid. It tastes good. I want it. I'd rather have that than what mom put on my plate. But your parents know better. And when you get older, you come to see that they actually were, were pretty wise. What initially seemed folly to you, the older you get, all of a sudden you're going, okay, now I, I get it. Now I understand. I see the wisdom there. We're focused on making Christ known this morning. And so as we think about this second point, that there's a genius in God's gospel, it should be a great encouragement to us. Because we're not out there looking for the best and the brightest or some group the world would deem qualified, thinking those are the people we've got to go win over. Paul's whole point here is that anyone is a candidate for the gospel. Anyone. Because God is in the business of saving without our help. I heard recently that the armed forces are falling far short of their recruiting goals. I believe this year, the, whereas the previous low had been when they only managed to hit about 90% of their recruiting goals, I believe they're coming in at about 75% of their recruiting goals. And so the armed forces are pushing back from the table going, how do we make ourselves more attractive? What do we need to do to, to change people's perception of the army, of the Navy, of the Air Force? How do we make this look better to people? What can we add to our recruitment process that's going to make someone want to come be a part of this? Christian, you and I are not recruiters for the gospel in the same way. We don't change the message. We go with the same message. And we take it to everyone because everyone is a candidate for the gospel according to God's plan for salvation. The only admissions test for Christianity is faith and repentance. That's why Paul says, even though Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, we preach Christ crucified because that's the message that saves Yes, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, who God is saving, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Y'all, there should be elements of this in all of our testimonies. Here's what I mean. All of us should be able to say together, you know what, I didn't bring anything spectacular to the table when it came to God saving me. 
God didn't save me because I was smarter than someone else. God didn't save me because I went to seminary. God didn't save me because I, I was born here or born there. I didn't bring anything to the table. God saved me by his full, unmerited grace and favor. And if he saved me, he can save you. So we need to make sure our testimonies bear out the genius of God's gospel. That he's the one that does the heavy lifting so that he gets all of the glory. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I, when I came to you, verse 1 of chapter 2, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice there's no temptation from Paul here to tamper with the gospel. No desire to dress it up, to make it more attractive. In fact, I'm encouraged by 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but specifically in this context, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because did you catch what Paul said there? I was with you in weakness, in fear. Have you ever been nervous to share the gospel with someone? Do you know the apostle Paul was right there too? He was nervous to share the gospel. He was nervous to preach Christ. Really, Paul was nervous? That's what it says. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. Have you ever felt like, man, I just don't know if I've got the words to be able to explain it in a way that's going to be understandable? Have you ever felt, man, I, I just, I, I, I don't want to mess up in, in sharing the gospel. I don't want to mess up, mess up in what I'm saying. Did you see that Paul felt that way too? Really, Paul felt that way? Yeah, Paul felt that way. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. So what did you come with, Paul? Well, I came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I came as a willing vessel. I was going to be a messenger and let the Spirit be the one that spoke through me. Let the Spirit be the one that empowered the message that I proclaim. There's no temptation for Paul to say, make sure that you are the smartest person in the room before you share the gospel. There's no temptation from Paul to say, if you are nervous to share the gospel, then, then something's wrong with you. In fact, here's 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Herein Paul says this, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We have renounced. We, we want nothing to do with anybody that wants to tamper the gospel. And y'all, do we see that today in Christianity? Yes. We, we see churches soft-pedaling the, the gospel, trying to make the gospel look more appealing, telling people, you know what, you hear enough about sin from the world, I don't need to talk to you about sin from the pulpit. I want to know what world are you living in? 
We hear this easy believism that's just, all you need to do is just pray a prayer and, and then, then you're good to go and, 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 and you're fine. Don't worry about the rest of your life after that. And, and that's not doing them as an unbeliever any favors. You know, if we're not preaching the full gospel, then we're not preaching a gospel that saves. If we're not calling people to die to themselves, to take up the cross to follow Jesus, then we're not preaching a gospel that saves. If we're not calling people to say, you know what, I'm willing to leave everything behind Jesus, take everything, I'm surrendering myself fully to you, then we're not preaching a gospel that saves. Am I preaching that you have to preach a gospel that somebody's got to earn their salvation? No, a million percent no. But to become a follower of Jesus is not just to add Jesus to our cushy and comfortable life and then go on with our lives like nothing needs to change. Jesus is not an idol to go next to our materialism. Jesus is not an idol to go next to our career pursuits. Jesus is not just the mascot of cultural Christianity that we wear here in the South sometimes so that when somebody says, hey, do you go to church anywhere? We've got an answer ready in our back pocket. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus came to save us from our materialism, to save us from our idols, to save, save us from our desire to be more and to, to get the acclaim of the world. It's a message that's totally radical that, that takes what the world's ambitions are and hopes and dreams are and says, quit living for that. Live now for Jesus. And the, the, the conduit, the, the entryway to that life is repent and believe that Jesus died on the cross from your sins and rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. That's what saves you. But y'all, when you're saved, your life looks radically different. And if you think, well, man, I, that just sounds like that's hard to believe, then you get it, Right? That's why point one is point one, that the gospel is absurd to the lost world. You want me to give up these things that I've been living my life for to follow Jesus? Now, that may not mean that you're going to lose it all. That's not what I'm saying. But you stop obsessing over all of these things because they, all of a sudden, as Paul said, become lost to you in light of the surpassing worth like we talked about last week of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel, guys. That's the gospel. We're not interested in putting more people in the seats if we're not putting more people in the seats who are actually following Jesus and not just following a cultural trend. We want people following Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. That's what Paul wanted as well. And so that's why he says, you know what? We've renounced, here's what he calls it, disgraceful, underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. That's why we are going to cut it straight week after week after week after week. And when we come across a passage that the world is going to cringe at, we're going to preach it. Because that's what we have to do. There's no power in a compromised Christianity. There's an ambition that Paul had, a refusal to do anything to rob the gospel of its power, and I hope we share that. Here's Paul in Galatians chapter 1. He says this, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Strong language from Paul. Let him be accursed. In other words, Paul's saying let him go to hell if he's twisting the gospel. And then he explains, he says, for am I now, verse 10, seeking to the approval of man? Is that what I'm after? 
Am I after the acclaim of, of men? Or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Y'all, we don't share a watered-down gospel to try to get people to like us. We share the full gospel to get them to love Jesus. If we make people comfortable in our churches and yet we're just making comfortable, them comfortable on the way to hell, it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem. When we look back at, at church history, I can't help but think that they would look at our current cultural context and, and, and maybe wonder, what are we doing? The Marian martyrs, they're called that because they died under the reign of Bloody Mary. If you get a chance this week just to, to spend some time, you can Google them. They're in Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can find out more about these men and these women, and even down to these, these children who professed a faith in Jesus in the church said, you need to deny the biblical gospel. And you know what they did? They went to the stake, they were chained to the stake, and they were burned alive for their faith in Jesus. And they refused to deny the gospel. And some of us don't want to get up early to be at church in the morning. I don't think we get it in some ways. I'm preaching this message before our official launch Sunday because this is still family time. Some of you guys are visitors here going, I, I, what, 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 what did I just walk into? But listen, this is what we're about. And we have to be about this. We cannot compromise on this. If you want to be comfortable, and I, I, I don't say this glibly, but if you want to be comfortable, there are plenty of churches you can go to and be comfortable. That, that's not our aim. Our aim is to create a, a faithful group of people that want to follow Jesus with everything. And when we go out to make Christ known, that's the Christ that we need to go out and make known. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do we believe that? That, that the gospel, the true biblical gospel is the power of God. That's our third and final point this morning. Write it down this way. Trust in the power of God's gospel. Trust in the power of God's gospel. We, we saw the absurdity of it, the genius of it, that he gets all the glory. And then finally we see the power of it, right? And this is what frees us up and unleashes us to go. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it doesn't need our help. Right? Imagine going to the gym and bringing a backpack full of rocks with you to the gym. Because you're like, well, I just don't know if they're going to have enough weight there at the gym for me to, 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 to get my swole on. I think that's another one of those slang terms that, that kids are using. That's ridiculous. Why would you bring a backpack full of rocks to the gym? You don't need, they've got weights there. They don't need your help. Their weights are better than the rocks that you picked up in their backyard. Go put them back. Sometimes we bring the backpack of rocks with us to the gospel. It's like we feel like we need to help the gospel out. You don't need to help the gospel out. Paul, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the what? Why? Verse 17. Verse 17 of Romans 1. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness or the righteous shall live by faith. Why is the gospel the power of God? Because the righteousness of God is contained therein, and it's ours through faith. 
Faith in who? In Jesus. Faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, same concept. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of us need this, y'all. Every single person needs the righteousness of God, the full righteousness of God, and it's contained in the message of the gospel. There's a, a, a store in, uh, in Turkey. I haven't been there, but a, a former seminary professor of mine put this picture up on Facebook recently. And, and the, the picture says, genuine fake watches. <laughs> what? And there, it's, in, it's one of the only signs in English around. I don't know if it's, yeah, it's right there, right? It's one of the only signs in English around. And I, I don't know if maybe this is an ESL problem that, that they're going, I think, yeah, this, this works. This is, this is saying the, the same thing. Clearly, you're not going to get the real deal there, right? Guys, we need to make sure that our churches are not promoting genuine fake Christianity. It's going to look close. It's going to be an approximation. It's not going to cost us as much as the real deal. We're going to be able to get it at a severe discount. It's not going to demand much of me. But in the end, it's going to be shown to be what it is, and that's worthless. The only gospel that saves is the full biblical gospel, which is a call to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just fire insurance. It's not just, great, I got that out of the way, now let me go about living the rest of my life and living my best life now. If your best life is now, then you have a horrible eternity in store for you. The gospel is about a radical shift in everything about who we are. It's a change in identity. The old is gone, the new has come. Behold, we are a new creation in Christ, right? Paul talks about it this way in Romans 6, right? He says, we've died to sin so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And and, and sometimes that's where we stop with that message. And and, and we pack our churches full of people that are like, great, I'm a moral free agent now with the full righteousness of Jesus. That's not Romans 6. Read the rest of it. Paul goes on in Romans 6. You know what he says in the rest of Romans 6? He says, we are a slave to righteousness now. So look, you've been set free from slavery to sin, but we're still slaves. Christians, you are still a slave. Make no doubt about it. You are enslaved this morning. You are either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. That's Christianity. It means to follow Jesus with everything that we've got. And this is when we say we want to know Christ and make him known. This is what we want to make known. And it's a radical message even in the midst of the buckle of the Bible belt. Why do we waver on this? A few thoughts. First is the stubbornness of others. The stubbornness of other people in our lives. We've shared the gospel and they just, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want anything to do with it. No. The power of God's gospel is able even to overcome that. Go again. 
If someone said, please don't share the gospel with me ever again, I don't want to hear it. Okay? But look for every crack in that door to get back to the gospel with them. And keep praying, just like George Mueller, and maybe God's power will overcome that stubbornness. Second reason why we might waver is time. It takes time to invest in someone and to keep going with them. Or maybe you look at someone and you think, well, I don't know that they've got enough time left to truly come to faith in Christ. God's gospel is powerful enough to save anyone, no matter what the time is. Maybe the other thing is fear. What if they push back? What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? They might. And it's fair to say, I don't know, but let me find that out for you. But know this, that in 2,000 years almost, God's gospel has never been defeated, and it won't be. And so its power is able to overcome even our fear. How about embarrassment? Well, I just am embarrassed to tell that person about the gospel. Can I ask if you'll be embarrassed when you're in eternity and you're thinking about where that person is spending their eternity? God's gospel is stronger and more powerful than even our embarrassment. So what should we do with the power of God's gospel? A few things here, things to remember as we go forward. Number one is the full content of the gospel. We've been talking about that already this morning. Make sure you're not tampering with it. Make sure you're not trying to make it more palatable. Make sure that you're delivering the fullness of the gospel of Jesus. Second things to remember are just point one and two. The gospel is absurd to a lost world, but it's the power of God that saves it. It's, it's his genius. It's his glory. He does the heavy lifting. You don't save people. God does. Third, I would encourage you to, to think about and read even on your time as you have time maybe later this afternoon or this week, Romans 10, 13 through 15. Romans 10, 13 through 15. That's the, the whole chain of events where Paul says, how are they going to be saved unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless someone preaches? How are they going to pre- preach unless someone is sent? And by the way, in that context, preaching is not what I'm doing right now. It's everybody's job to go out and share the gospel with people. So Paul there is telling us, all of us have been commissioned to go and, and preach the gospel. And then finally, another thing to remember finally is that God saved you. God saved you. If he broke down your walls, if he broke down your objections, if he broke down your skepticism, if he revealed the wisdom in light of what you originally thought was foolish, then he can do that with the lost in your life as well. The greatest power any of us in this room have access to is the message of the gospel. Not a message of human wisdom or understanding. Before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples to the task of being faithful with the gospel. To spread the good news. He said it in Matthew 28. He said it in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And again, this is the only thing that we can be more faithful with and better at here than we'll be able to do better in heaven in his presence. But it's a task that requires all of our participation. There's no one that's exempt from sharing the gospel. If Christ is your Savior, you are under the Great Commission. It's the only way that you're more useful to the Lord here than you will be to Him in heaven. He doesn't need your accounting skills. He doesn't need your expertise in the courtroom. He doesn't need your sales pitch. He doesn't need your kid's athletic prowess. That's not why you're still here. 
all of us are still here for the purpose of making Christ known. And so the question this morning is, are we being faithful to that stewardship? Do you know him? And are you making him known? Let me pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it resonates with those that you have given the eyes to see and the ears to hear. God, keep us from wanting to tamper with the gospel. Keep us from wanting to make the gospel more palatable, more, uh, more acceptable to a lost world. God, give us winsomeness as we share the message of the gospel as well, though. Keep us back from arrogance and pride. In fact, do the opposite, Lord. Humbly break our hearts for the lost. And keep us, Lord, always persistent in wanting to take the message of the cross. We don't know how much more time we have here as the church at large or even just as individuals. But God, we want to be faithful with what you've called us to do here and now, which is to take the message of the gospel to the lost. We're going to be able to do so much better in heaven than we can do here, but that's one thing that won't be there at all. There's no evangelism in heaven. There's only the opportunity for that here and now. And those of us in Christ here and now can rejoice in that reality and, and thank you for that, that, that you were patient such that you allowed someone to come into our lives and to, to preach the biblical gospel to us. And that you gave us the eyes to see and the ears to hear so that we would repent from our sins and trust Jesus as our Savior. God, we're grateful for that. And I pray for those in this room that you would bring more into their lives even this week. Give us divine appointments this week with people that we could proclaim this gospel, this message, the message that saves to them so that their lives might be changed, that they might become new creations in Christ and follow Jesus with all that they are. Pray that you'd be pleased with all of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please.